This morning we're going to begin a series that will lead us up to Easter. Um, it's called Kingdom Over Everything. And this is something I've wanted to teach um, to this house and talk about for a long, long time. We've, we've touched on this series or the, on these teachings a couple different times, a couple different ways over the years. And I wanted to allow this to, to inform a conversation that I want us to have about what is the kingdom? How do we carry and release the kingdom? And then what is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? And then that will lead us right up to Easter morning on April 9th. And so um, this is what these next few Sundays are, are going to be. And so Jesus told us this as he came. He said, seek first my kingdom. And we, I want to know, and I want us to know what that means. He, he taught us to pray. And he said, he said, when you pray, pray this way, that my kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what is this thing that Jesus is talking about? And when you look at the gospels, you see Jesus teaching about the kingdom more than anything else. It is kingdom, 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 kingdom. What in the world is this kingdom that he's talking about? And why are we called into this place of kingdom living? And so Jesus' claim um, to kingship, was actually the reason and one of the main reasons that he was crucified. From the very beginning, when the wise men came from the east, if you remember, they came and they asked Herod, they said, where is this, man, this baby who was born, what, king of the Jews? And so from the very beginning of Jesus' story, this kingly line was tied into, that thread was tied into the narrative. And Jesus' main message that he taught was kingdom. He, he, it said he came and he, he taught, repent, for the kingdom is at hand, for the kingdom is here, for the kingdom has arrived. And so the kingdom is among us, as he said in Matthew 3, 2. As he said in Luke 17, the kingdom's not over here. The kingdom's not over here. The kingdom is among you. And this is how Jesus taught on the kingdom. When Jerusalem um, brought the, when the priests brought, and the Pharisees brought Jesus before Pilate to, uh, to be crucified or when, he, when they brought him on trial, the thing that Pilate asked Jesus was this, are you the king of the Jews? Luke 23. All four of the New Testament Gospels have him ask this question of Jesus in these exact words. And in three of them, you see Jesus replying, it is as you say, or what you say is true. When Jesus was crucified, what was the sign that hung over his head? It was said, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. John 19, 20 states that this was written in three different languages, in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. He was the king that the people had been waiting for. He was the deliverer. He was the Messiah, but they missed it and they didn't see him. And it because it turned out that he was absolutely not the type of king that the people were looking for. Come and run our political systems. Come and overthrow our oppressors. Come and set our enemies straight. Come and fix all of this and bring us into this place of conquering heroes. We have lived under so many other nations for so long. Surely our King, our Messiah will come and will overthrow the Romans. And he came instead of overthrowing, he came to lay down his life. And it made no sense to people to the point that his declaration that he was King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that he was who they said he was, is what brought him in so many ways, brought him to the cross. When Jesus arrived on the scene, they thought that that the Messiah would be that overthrower and that conqueror for Israel to be restored and the, the throne of David to be put back in its rightful place. And it was the correct timing for Jesus and the, or for the Messiah to show up. If you ever read historically of the New Testament times, you'll discover that there were people making claims to being the Messiah, claims to being the king all over the region because it was the correct time according to the prophecies. When they looked into the Old Testament scriptures and began to understand something that we will look at in Daniel chapter 2 as I told you to turn to that in Daniel chapter 2 there was a sequence of events that had led them to this place in this moment where there was a heightened sense and awareness that the Messiah was going to come and was going to arrive on the scene which then caused different people to be saying come out here I'm the Messiah I am performing miracles I'm doing these things which then made the religious ruling class of the day have to start investigating all these different Messiah 
messianic claims that were happening? Why, was the, why were these, the, these groups of Pharisees following Jesus around and asking him questions? Because this was a common practice of the day that people were claiming to be the Messiah. Why? Because the timeline was making sense prophetically for them to arrive on the scene. And so Jesus arrived in the exact time that God had said he would arrive. And yet because he did not arrive as a conquering hero and a political champion and a, and a king that was going to take back a throne... They missed it. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom did not arrive emphatically and still is growing to this day like a mustard seed, like yeast that works its way through the dough. And so we have to understand that. We get to look back and understand this. So come with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2. The kingdom that Jesus brought was established so differently than anyone that they had ever imagined before. So... Dispensationalism, I'm, I'm going to try not to, to dive too much into this, but there is a prevalent doctrine within many churches that impacts how we view the past, how we view the present, how we view the future. And I'm not going to do it justice in the time that we have, and I'm not up here to undercut it or to vilify it or anything like that. I just have to explain it to you because it divides history of the world from creation all the way into the future into seven ages or seven different dispensations. And so I want to address this. Not as any sort of false teaching, but just so that we're aware of it because it is so pervasive within the church uh, of America and with the church today that it can become something that you, uh, uh, that, is, that you understand the Bible through and that you understand the past and the present and the future through without, ever, without even realizing it. So I'm going to share it with you, not so that you will throw it away, but simply so that you will understand. Every single one of us have methodologies. We have, we have made up, diff, not made up, we have different forms of theology and doctrine that we have uh, adopted in everything that we believe, myself included. Everything that we read from the scripture, everything we believe has to kind of be, be brought through this systematic that we, this systematic doctrine of theology that we have, we all have them. And really the best thing I can encourage you in is that the more you understand which yours are particular, you will be able to not be so heavily influenced by them. You just say, oh yeah, that's a way that I was taught to view Jesus, to view scripture, to view this story. And I'm not going to be, I don't want to be a slave to that, but I want to understand that I haven't. So dispensationalism is one that is, is probably has, um, has been a part of a lot of our views on, on the church, on the early church, on the Bible. So this is what, how it usually works. Each dispensation is a record recognizable pattern of how God worked with people living in that particular dispensation. That pattern is what? The, that God gives people a responsibility, that the people fail to hold up their end of the responsibility, that God judges people, everything falls apart, and then there is a grace for God to move his people into a new dispensation. And so this viewpoint, if I could really put it in a nutshell, is basically this. God shows up, God gives instructions, we fail at them, everything falls apart, and God tries again. And and then we get instructions, we try, fail at them, and everything falls apart, and then God tries again. And so it almost becomes this thing where Christians start to look around as if it is hopeful when things are falling apart. So... The dispensations are this, creation until the fall, the age of innocence, Genesis 1 through Genesis 3, the fall to the flood, the, con the age of conscience, Genesis 3 to 8, flood of Abraham, human government, the age of human government, Genesis 9 to 11, Abraham to Moses, the age of promise, Genesis 12 to Exodus 19, the age of Moses, or Moses to Jesus is the, is the that's, the, uh, sorry, Moses to the new covenant is the age of the law, Exodus 20 to Acts 2, Jesus starts the church, that is the age of grace, Acts 2 to Revelation 20. And then Revelation 20, verse 4, is the millennial reign of Jesus. It is the kingdom age. And so you learn, we learn through this to look forward to the return of Jesus, where he is going to put an end to all of this hullabaloo, and he's going to essentially start over with a millennial reign of Jesus for a thousand years, which is the ushering in of the kingdom. Why do I mention that? Because if we believe that the kingdom is in the future, we will misunderstand what Jesus says when he says, seek first the kingdom. We will misunderstand what Jesus says when he says, repent and turn for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We will misunderstand this imperative in our prayer life to say, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is right now, that is not booted into some future place and time that we are waiting for. How do we ask for the kingdom while 
simultaneously believing that the kingdom doesn't start until Jesus come back, comes back, wrecks everything, takes his people out of this place. I'm sorry if I got the sequence wrong. Takes people out of this place, wrecks everything, rebuilds everything, rebuilds Jerusalem, rebuilds the temple, comes back down, rebuilds his throne, sits on the throne, and then reigns for a thousand years in the kingdom age. If the kingdom is in the future, then nothing I'm going to tell you today has any relevance on your life right now. So, Daniel 2. So, okay. I can't. I'm not, I'm breathing. The teaching that we're not in the kingdom because the kingdom is in the future reality that happens after the rapture and tribulation and the defeat of Satan and everything else. So the kingdom is synonymous with that thousand year millennial reign of Christ. And this is what people were taught in that last Dispensation. So if we back it up to Daniel chapter 2, you'll understand a couple things. One, why people were looking for the Messiah in that time that Jesus showed up. And you'll understand, two, why teaching on the kingdom is, gets so confusing when we're in this present day church uh, life and history, in this moment in church history. So the background to Daniel chapter 2 is that somewhere around 500 BC, Israel has been taken over by Babylon. There is the king of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream. He asked all of his sorcerers and magicians to interpret his dream, and they couldn't. So Daniel, who was an exile from Israel, he was able to interpret the dream. This is the interaction between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, 31 through 45. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest was silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, a physical rock, but cut out not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, they were all broken to pieces and became like chaff that on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he, was made, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united. And more than iron, any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time, verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven, in the time of those kings he just mentioned, of those toes and the feet and the iron and the clay, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to other people, to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and it will bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And so if we look at this prophetic dream with a straightforward view of scripture that says this, we don't have to go hunting throughout all of history and time to find, to often find fulfillment of prophetic things that are spoken of in the Old Testament. And when prophecies are given, you don't have to go looking around. We just go, oh, it says that there's going to be a king who's Nebuchadnezzar, the next kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom and the next kingdom. And during that kingdom, there will be a new kingdom that comes and it will not be shaken. It will not be removed and it will remain forever. So if we look at that, if we look at scripture and believe that a straightforward reading of scripture allows us to interpret, especially when we're dealing with prophetic sections of scripture, 
Let's look at that historically. So you have the head and gold is Babylon. That is Nebuchadnezzar. Then you have the, 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 the armies in the nation that came and defeated them were the Persians. That would be the chest and the arms. And then came and defeated them were the Greeks. That would be, uh, and then who defeated the Greeks were the Romans. And then you have this clay and iron of the feet. And then you have this rock that comes and smashes it. So if you follow it sequentially, we don't have to jump any gaps in history to follow that along from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the Romans. And where was Jesus or who was over the Israelites when Jesus showed up? It was the Romans. If people are reading this historically, they're going to go, bada bing, bada bing, bada bing, bada bing. Messiah, the Messiah should show up right here, right now. That's why there was a heightened sense and awareness of a Messiah coming and of this taking place. That's why there was a heightened sense in the Pharisees and in the Sadducees and the religious ruling class to be on the lookout, to really be able to affirm and test. There will be people claiming to be Messiah. We need to be able to test it because we're in charge of everything. Um, and so... Oh, I love it when I write things into my notes that say, like, you can skip this section if needed. <laughs> it's like I knew. Thank you. Thank you, past Ryan, for helping present Ryan. So what about the, you guys are like, but what did you skip? Well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it was mostly ranting and angry, and it's not, it's no fun. <laughs> All right. Well. Okay, so what about the feet and the toes that are representing this divided kingdom? Let's dive into that just for a second. The Roman Empire became known to, as what is to, as known as the divided Roman Empire towards the end of that time. Kings under the emperor. So this was done under Caesar Augustus who reigned from 27 BC until 14 AD. Okay, got your time frame there? Caesar Augustus, he created 10 provinces in Rome. Rome got so large that they couldn't be ruled. And so he broke them into 10 provinces and he set 10 rulers over each of those 10 provinces with a head over them. And those 10 provinces became known as the divided Roman Empire. This helped bring peace to the areas because it was what? A mixed people. It was different cultures and different tribes and they had expanded to the degree that they needed to set up different rules, rulers over each of those sections of their empire. And so this allowed the peace to remain and it eased some of the tension and some of the rebellions. And in Daniel 2.44, it says, in the time of those kings, if we're looking back at that prophetic picture from the statue, in the time of those kings, the feet, this period, the divided Roman Empire, he sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What happened during Augustus' reign? Jesus was born. Who is the rock that was not cut out by human hands? I love that picture of it being both natural and supernatural. This is the divinity. This is the incarnation. This is the story that we're beginning to see in the prophetic pictures of the Old Testament that are pointing directly towards Jesus as you follow a timeline that says these folks to these folks to these folks to these folks to a divided Roman Empire. The feet are that divided Roman Empire. During that time, a rock will be cut out that is not cut by human hands and it will smash all of these and it will become a kingdom that fills the entire earth. For dispensationalism to work, for some of our future views of eschatology to work, you have to literally grab those feet. You have to be like, sequence, 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 2,500 years in the future. <laughs> That's going to happen. After the Roman Empire is restored, after, which is probably going to happen when all of our money becomes one type of money and a new world order is built. And that's why I'm reading the Blood Moon books and the Harbinger books and the Left Behind series because I like to just give my money away to fantasy. We just, just kidding. <laughs> I'm just saying, for the, those books are fascinating, but for them to work, you have to take this prophetic picture that is sequential, and you have to take the feet, and you have to throw it into 2,000 and whatever year. I mean, some of you are like probably about 2,025, the way things are going right now. <laughs> yeah, it's the end. Come, Jesus, come and smite my enemies. And Anyway, okay, so for those things to work, I'm sorry, I told you, I was like, oh, gosh, I'm the worst. You're like, yeah, you said about dispensationalism that I'm not here to undercut it, and then you're making fun of it, and you're a jerk. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're right. Could be true. 
Could be true. As long as we are okay, believe, as, you know what? You can believe in dispensationalism. You can believe those feet got cast 2,000 years into the future. As long as we can agree on this, that Jesus taught us that the kingdom is present and the kingdom is now and that that affects the way that we live our lives right here and right now. Okay, so... That divided kingdom, um, who is the rock not cut out by human hands, is Jesus. So Jesus came, and for three and a half years, I think that's it. Is that my time? That's my time. Where's Nisha? That's it, right? I'm supposed to be done. We're coming back. No, 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 no. We're close. Worship team, if you guys will just start um, pretending like you can get ready to come up here. Jesus came, and for three and a half years, check this out, you guys, check this out, this rock that came and destroyed those feet. He's the cornerstone that the builders rejected, Psalm 118, 22, Matthew 21, 42, Acts 4, 11. He's the stumbling stone in Zion, Isaiah 28, 16, Romans 9, 33, 1 Peter 2, 6. He's the rock that followed his people in the wilderness, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And beyond that, when Simon Peter answered Jesus' question with who... Do people, or who do you say that I am? And he said that you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God that Jesus said to him. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, on this truth of who I am, I will build my church. He is the rock that has crushed every other kingdom that has gone before him. And he is the rock that is established a kingdom that will not be given away, that will not be usurped, that will not be taken by human effort or power or human greed or whatever it is because it belongs to Jesus who is seated on the throne and it is growing and expanding to fill the earth. And we are a part of it. Why? Because Jesus is the rock. Because Jesus Jesus is that kingdom. The kingdom starts with a king in a manger, and then John the Baptist shows up 30 years after Jesus' birth, and he begins by declaring what? The kingdom is at hand. Repent and turn from your selfishness and your ways and turn, because the king is coming. And then Jesus came and he preached this. Repent and demonstrations of the kingdom are at hand. This is what it looks like in my kingdom is what he came to demonstrate. The sick are healed, the blind see, the condemned are freed, the oppressed are forgot- and the forgotten are valued. The good news is for the poor. The orphans are adopted. Family is extended. The table is open and the father is forgiving. He said, this is what my kingdom looks like. And he spent three and a half years demonstrating for us an entirely different kingdom. There wasn't power over, it was power under. It wasn't to overthrow, but it was to serve. And when he could have called down wrath and when he could have destroyed and when he absolutely could have overthrown the Roman government, he chose instead to wash the feet of his disciples. And they hated it just like we hate it today. Because we want a savior that is a hero and a champion and who will come in and will destroy those that are giving us so much pain and trouble and struggle and strife. And we want Jesus to come and go, I hate my enemies. Destroy them. And he wants to come and stand behind, beside us and say, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. What kind of stupid kingdom is this? The disciples are like, when do we get our 12 thrones, Jesus? What kind of dumb kingdom are you wanting me to be a part of where I get struck and you're telling me to turn the other cheek when I have all of the authority and power of heaven behind me? It's one thing to be hit when you are powerless. It's an entirely different thing to be hit when you have the power of heaven behind you and to choose to turn the other cheek. This is the kingdom that Jesus lived out on this earth and it is the kingdom that he invites us to be a part of and I'm sorry to tell you this kingdom does not look like what America represents this kingdom does not look like what your Democrat party looks like this kingdom does not look like what your Republican party looks like this kingdom does not look like our business people and mm, business people are amazing our how to say this correctly. It just doesn't look like the systems that are in place that feed those at the top with greed while continuing to suppress and oppress those that are at the bottom of the system that Jesus would come to say, this is not the way that it is. This is how it is. And he would take those that are beaten and forgotten and left on the side of the road because they are the worst of the worst and the nobodies of the nobodies. And he would say, you know what the kingdom looks like? 
It doesn't look like the religious person crossing the road to not soil themselves with that person. It doesn't look like the wealthy. It doesn't look like it looks like the person who should be an enemy to that person crossing the road and caring for them out of their own pocket and not just doing it for a moment, but coming back again and again to make sure that that person is cared for. What is this silly kingdom? It makes no sense to us. It is absolutely an upside down kingdom. And the more that we live for the kingdoms of this world, the more at odds we will be at the kingdom of, of Jesus. And I don't want that to be the reality of our hearts and of our lives and of this people and the story of this house. Jesus wasn't just establishing an earthly kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom. And then we follow Jesus to the Last Supper, and what does he say to his disciples right before his death? The ultimate expression of his kingdom wasn't an army victory. It was him just laying down his life. And at that dinner, he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant. This is my body, and this is the blood of my covenant, a new covenant, he says in Matthew 26. But in Luke 22, 29, it tells a little, and he says that in Luke 22, 20, but in Luke 22, 29, there's something that I think we miss at that last meal. And he said to them, his disciples, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred a kingdom unto me. The missing piece in a lot of people's faith journey is the beauty of kingdom and kingdom discipleship and a kingdom mindset that is Jesus asking us to steward the kingdom that he started on this earth. Earth. And he transferred that kingdom to us. He doesn't say to them, someday you'll get a kingdom or someday I'll be back to give it to you. He transfers the kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy. And he gives it to them. It is a present reality that he hands to them to steward. And there has been an ongoing progression of his kingdom ever since that day. When we look at things where we believe, oh, Jesus is going to come back in the future and, it's, and his, his, his millennial reign is going to start with armies and, and a new Jerusalem that just, bam, sets right down in the middle of everything and everything's fixed and made right. We are not in agreement with a scriptural teaching of the kingdom that says it's actually a mustard seed. It starts tiny. How tiny? With a king born in a manger. How small? With no army around him and his followers fleeing from him. How small? With the king of this kingdom giving up his life. Being beaten having a crown put on his head that's actually thorns that's pounded into him and being beaten until he was unrecognizable. Is this the king that you want to follow? Is this a kingdom that you want to be a part of? Because I know that if you're like me, every one of us in this room wants a king that would rip that crown off, would grab a sword and would just go to town. And yet he's asking us to be a part of a kingdom where we lay down our rights and we lay down ourselves. And we learn what it looks like where he says to truly love someone else is to lay down your life for them. Even if they're not like you. Even if they don't like you. Even if you don't agree with them. Even if they want to come to your church and worship Jesus next to you and you don't think they're doing it right. Even if they have certain viewpoints and beliefs and things that are around them that you don't want anything to do with. That we would say, Teach me to love and bless and pray for those people because this is how my king extends his kingdom. Amen. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you that Jesus is coming back and everybody's going to have hell to pay. But in the economy of Jesus who lays down his life for others, justice to him is not setting everything right and paying back every single thing that was against us or against you or against anyone else and paying that back to the enemy. The way that he enacts justice is to say, I died on the cross for you just as I died on the cross for them. And I love that son as much as I love this son. And I will get down on my feet before that enemy and I will wash his feet just like I will get down on the feet before on the floor before you and wash your feet. Justice to Jesus is that every single person receives what he paid for. And what he paid for was that we would be released and we would experience the grace and the mercy and we would get to experience a face-to-face -face reality of a father who says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and you have a home with me. And I'm talking about your enemies. 
I'm talking about the ones that you hate. I'm talking about the ones that you wouldn't cross the road if they were beaten and in the gutter. And Jesus says, you know what I would do? I would go and I would care for them. And I would kneel before them and I would love them. And the religious says, yeah, but. Listen. The only thing that really needs to be consumed by the fire of Jesus' presence is all of our, yeah, but. Grace needs to be so unfathomably good that it makes us uncomfortable when we really deeply think about it as the expression of a savior and a king who would lay down his life instead of bring a conquering army to bear on his enemies. So let's wrap it up by simplifying everything. Gosh, dang it. They couldn't grasp it. Even the smartest teacher of, the, of their religion couldn't grasp it. Can we, I think we can if we can simplify everything. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is this. It's defined as the king's domain. Simply put, the kingdom is anywhere that, the, that King Jesus is seated on the throne. Worship team, I want you to come up. Please. The kingdom is anywhere that King Jesus is seated on the throne. It exists spiritually within us and externally around us as we live out the life and love of Jesus. But how does it start and how do we find it and how do we see the kingdom? Let me tell you. As we prepare our hearts to worship and to respond. The greatest teacher of the time was Nicodemus. I don't know what happens in the episode of Chosen yet, so don't tell me. Jesus was sitting down with Nicodemus and he said, very truly, I tell you, no one can come see the kingdom of God unless they are born again from above. And what that means when you, when you study that phrase, it means unless you're reborn from a different source and you're reborn from God. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. And I don't read this as if Nicodemus is an idiot. Okay. Nicodemus was the most brilliant teacher of his day. He was in a conversation with Jesus where he was pushing back two brilliant men who were having a conversation. Not Nicodemus. It's like, who do you mean, Jesus? And I think if we imagine him in that way, we do a disservice to this. He should have understood what Jesus was saying, but he was having a hard time grasping it. What do you mean? How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. Because why? He thought Nicodemus was smart. He knew that Nicodemus should grasp this. Where are there places, Nicodemus, in your history and in your teaching that talk about this reality? You should know this. Have you ever sat down with your kids and you've taught them something 175 times and you're like, we've been over this. I know, I know that you know this. Because Nicodemus would have taught this passage of scripture over and over and over again as he waited upon a king, a Messiah. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. So God is promising and Nicodemus knew this promise and Jesus was referencing it through the prophet Ezekiel, 600 years before Jesus. And here is the teacher of that, of that content sitting before Jesus saying, what do you mean I have to be born of water? What do you mean I have to be born of spirit? And he reminds him of this prophecy of Ezekiel, that if we are born in the spirit, that our hearts would be washed with water and that the spirit would transform us as people. And in that transformation, we would be able to see the kingdom of Jesus around us. 
Not just looking out and seeing the different systems and kingdoms that we can all see and perceive around us, but superseding that and behind that and above every single one of those, we would see the kingdom of King Jesus because he is seated on the throne. And how does that happen unless we are born of the Spirit? How does that happen unless we give our hearts to the King and allow him to wash our hearts and to make us new and to give us new eyes to be able to see the reality of the kingdom kingdom of Jesus that is around you and upon you right here, right now, as I look at you, as I look at your marriage, as I look at your family, as I look at your school, as I look at your workplace, as I look at your places of influence, I don't just see the systems of man that you feel like you're fighting against. I see the kingdom of Jesus that is right there at hand. And if we repent and if we take that reality and say, I want new heart and I want new eyes from you, Jesus so that I can see your kingdom above everything else, then we too would be prepared to receive a Messiah that others in history missed because they were looking for a conquering hero instead of a savior who would come and say, I'm gonna lay down my life for you. So for us and for our response this morning, I appreciate the opportunity to build some history into this message in these series of messages that I'm gonna be giving for the next few weeks. But if I'm being completely honest, what does the kingdom look like? I think for us, if we understand the kingdom to be the king's domain, before we get too worked up about what's out there and What's his kingdom doing out there? I think we need to take a space and just say, if it is about the king's domain, if it is every place where the king is seated on the throne, before I'm worried about what's going on out and around me, let me make sure that Jesus, you are the king of my heart. That Jesus, you are the king of my mind. That Jesus, you are the king of my life. So what is it that the kingdom looks like? Is it Jesus on a white horse riding back in to slay his enemies? No. It's you and me on our faces before him just saying, Scripture declares that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, you are Lord. So what am I waiting for? The kingdom comes home to my heart when I take anything off of the throne of my life that is not Jesus. If you would close your eyes with me, I just want to invite us into a time of worship. And there's space. I don't actually, I don't know if there's space. Nisha was like, come forward, come forward if you want to. Find space in the aisles if you want to. I think that our response to this is saying, on this Sunday where we put our hearts on your kingdom, that we wouldn't be so worried about what it means for the political structures of this world. We wouldn't be so worried about what it means for the industrial and economic portions of this world. We wouldn't be so concerned with what it means in the future that we would really understand that first and foremost, the kingdom is a supernatural transformation of my heart and my eyes to even be able to behold it and understand it. And so it starts like this with me on my knees saying, you are king of my heart. You are king of my life. And it comes with repentance that says if there's any time that I look or anything that I look at and say, you are not the king of this area, that I would remove whatever it is from the throne and I would say, Jesus, I want you on the throne. Can you just begin to do that with me of searching your heart and just saying, are you, are you on the throne of my heart, my mind, my eyes, my life, my hands, the things I do and how they do them? Are you the king? I want that transformation so I can see your kingdom. And as you find places or you find yourself ready to surrender to him again completely, then I would challenge you just to find a spot where you can get on your knees as an act and just say, here I am kneeling before you saying, you are my king. Maybe it's an act of repentance. Maybe it's an act of surrender. And here's what I believe as I was praying for this morning, what I believe will happen is it will actually be a place of great relief for you because so many of you have tried to sit on the throne of different areas of your life 
And to the degree that you sit on the throne of that area of your life, you become responsible for the outcomes. How could you not live with anxiety and worry when you're sitting on the throne of that, that outcome or that person's behavior or your marriage or whatever it may be? When we get off the throne, we get a sense, a deep sense of relief because it puts Jesus where he is supposed to be. And he says, finally, let me have that. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Come to me who are heavy laden. Come to you, to me who are filled with worry. Why? Because we are seated on the throne of that place and therefore we are taking responsibility for outcomes that don't belong to us. They belong to you. You are the king. And as we find ourselves on our knees before you, I ask Jesus that we would experience a fresh wave of relief. Of relief because the king is on the throne. It is not my throne. It is not my outcomes. It is not my kingdom. It is yours. It is yours. It is yours. left in this space and then we'll probably just open the door so that you can go and if you need to get middle schoolers or get get your kids or head out but we want to keep this space in this room sacred for the next few minutes so that we can respond if you need prayer our ministry team is, is available to you if you would like to take communion as an act of exchange this morning it's available to you but I would just say to you not to rush to those things until you take these moments and join me in this prayer, Spirit of the living God, that you would search our hearts. We want to see and know your kingdom. But it's a spiritual kingdom and there has to be a spiritual transformation that takes place. And we need the water of your presence. We need the transformation of your spirit to wash us and to refine us and to turn us from idols, to turn us from lesser things to the greater things, to turn us from earthly kingdoms and earthly systems to the greater kingdom, to the only kingdom, to the kingdom that came and destroyed all of the others and to this day continues to fill. Search us and search the thrones of our lives that you would be seated upon it. This is what kingdom looks like. This is what kingdom looks like. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus, you are Lord. You are King. Give me 
pursue 